We at Amazing Stories are thankful for and gracefully accept the donations we receive from our listeners from across the world who count on the unique programming we provide. You too can donate through the link provided in the description section of each episode. Please keep in mind that the continued support from our growing audience helps us fulfill our mission of bringing you a new amazing story every day. Thank you for listening, and we hope you continue to enjoy our stories. There was no debauch of drinking. Far from it. He found that he actually drank less. Something had changed. Trying to analyze it, he came to the conclusion that his last drink had put him on the bottom, at the very nadir of frustrated despair. Now, unless he put himself under the ground, the only way he could go was up. After the first few weeks of building up intense hope about the dog, it had slowly dawned on him that intense hope was not the answer, and never had been. In a world of monotonous horror, there could be no salvation in wild dreaming. Horror he had adjusted to, but monotony was the greater obstacle, and he realized it now, understood it at long last, and understanding it seemed to give him a sort of quiet peace a sense of having spread all the cards on his mental table, examined them, and settled conclusively on the desired hand. Burying the dog had not been the agony he had supposed it would be. In a way, it was almost like burying threadbare hopes and false excitements. From that day on, he learned to accept the dungeon he existed in, neither seeking to escape with sudden daring do nor beating his pate bloody on its walls. And thus resigned, he returned to work. It had happened almost a year before, several days after he'd put Virginia to her second and final rest. Hollow and bleak, a sense of absolute loss in him, he was walking the streets late one afternoon, hands listless at his sides, feet shuffling with the rhythm of despair. His face was a blank. He had wandered through the streets for hours, neither knowing or caring where he was going. All he knew was that he couldn't return to the empty house, couldn't look at the things they had touched and held and known. He couldn't look at Kathy's empty bed, at her clothes hanging still and useless in the closet couldn't look at the bed that he and Virginia had slept in, at her clothes, her jewelry. He couldn't go near the house. And so he walked and wandered, and he didn't know where he was when the people started milling past him, when the man caught his arm and breathed garlic in his face. Come, brother, come, the man said, his voice a grating rasp. He saw the man's throat moving like clammy turkey skin, the red splotched cheeks, the feverish eyes, the black suit, unpressed, unclean. Come and be saved, brother, saved. Robert Neville stared at the man. He didn't understand, 
The man pulled him on, his skeleton fingers on Neville's arm. "'It's never too late, brother,' said the man. "'Salvation comes to him who—' The last of his words were lost now in the rising murmur of sound from the great tent they were approaching. It sounded like the sea imprisoned under canvas, roaring to escape. Robert Neville tried to loose his arm. I don't want to. The tent had swallowed him then. The ocean of shouting, stamping, hand-clapping sound engulfed him. He flinched instinctively and felt his heart begin to pump heavily. He was surrounded now by people, hundreds of them, swelling and gushing around him like waters closing in, and yelling, clapping, and crying out words Robert Neville couldn't understand. Then the cries died down, and he heard the voice that stabbed through the half-light like knifing doom, that crackled and bit shrilly over the loudspeaker system. Do you want to fear the holy cross of God? Do you want to look into the mirror and not see the face that Almighty God has given you? Do you want to come crawling back from the grave like a monster out of hell? The voice enjoined hoarsely, pulsing, driving. Do you want to be changed into a black, unholy animal? Do you want to stain the living sky with hell-born bat wings? I ask you, do you want to be turned into godless, night-cursed husks, into creatures of eternal damnation? No! The people erupted, terror-stricken. No! Save us! Robert Neville backed away, bumping into flailing-handed, white-jawed true believers, screaming out for succor from the lowering skies. I tell you that unless we become as little children, stainless and pure in the eyes of our Lord, Unless we stand up and shout out the glory of Almighty God and of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, unless we fall on our knees and beg forgiveness for our grievous offenses, we are damned! The people twisted and moaned and smote their brows and shrieked in mortal terror and screamed out, terrible hallelujahs. Robert Neville was shoved about, stumbling and lost in a treadmill of hopes, in a crossfire of frenzied worship. God has punished us for our great transgressions. He has opened the grave. He has unsealed the crypt. He has turned the dead from their black tombs and set them upon us. Oh, God, you have struck us with the might of your almighty wrath. Clapping hands like the splatter of irregular rifle fire, praying bodies like stalks in a terrible wind, moans of the great potential dead, screams of the fighting living. Robert Neville strained through their violent ranks, face white, hands before him like those of a blind man seeking shelter. He escaped, weak and trembling, stumbling away from them. Inside the tent, 
the people screamed. But night had already fallen. He thought about that now as he sat in the living room nursing a mild drink, a psychology text resting on his lap. A quotation had started the train of thought, sending him back to that evening ten months before, when he'd been pulled into the revival meeting. This condition, known as hysterical blindness, may be partial or complete, including one, several, or all objects. That was the quotation he had read. It had started him working on the problem again. A new approach now. Before, he had stubbornly persisted in attributing all vampire phenomena to the germ. If certain of these phenomena did not fit in with the bacilli, he felt inclined to judge their cause as superstition. True, he'd vaguely considered psychological explanations, but he'd never really given much credence to such a possibility. Now, released at last from unyielding preconceptions, he did. There was no reason, he knew, why some of the phenomena should not be physically caused, the rest psychological. And now that he accepted it, it seemed one of those patent answers that only a blind man would miss. Well, I always was the blind man type, he thought in quiet amusement. Consider, he thought then, the shock undergone by a victim of the plague. Toward the end of the plague, yellow journalism had spread a cancerous dread of vampires to all corners of the nation. He could remember himself the rash of pseudo-scientific articles that veiled an out-and-out -out fright campaign designed to sell papers. There was something grotesquely amusing in that, the frenetic attempt to sell papers while the world died. Not that all newspapers had done that, those papers that had lived in honesty and integrity had died the same way. Yellow journalism, though, had been rampant in the final days, and in addition, a great upsurge in revivalism had occurred. In a typical desperation for quick answers, easily understood, people had turned to primitive worship as the solution, with less than success. Not only had they died as quickly as the rest of the people, but they had died with terror in their hearts, with a mortal dread flowing in their very veins. And then, Robert Neville thought, to have this hideous dread vindicated, to regain consciousness beneath hot, heavy soil, and know that death had not brought rest, to find themselves clawing up through the earth, their bodies driven now by a strange, hideous need. Such traumatic shocks could undo what mind was left, and such shocks could explain much. The cross, first of all. Once they were forced to accept vindication of the dread of being repelled by an object that had been a focal point of worship, their minds could have snapped. Dread of the cross sprang up, and driven on, despite already created dreads, the vampire could have acquired an intense mental loathing, and this self-hatred could have set up a block in their weakened minds, causing them to be blind to their own abhorred image. It could make them lonely, 
so lost slaves of the night, afraid to approach anyone, living a solitary existence, often seeking solace in the soil of their native land, struggling to gain a sense of communion with something, anything. The water? That he did accept as superstition, a carryover of the traditional legend that witches were incapable of crossing running water, as written down in the story of Tam O'Shanter. Witches, vampires, in all these feared beings there was a sort of interwoven kinship. Legends and superstitions could overlap and did. And the living vampires? That was simple too, now. In life there were the deranged, the insane. What better hold than vampirism for these to catch on to? He was certain that all the living who came to his house at night were insane, thinking themselves true vampires, although actually they were only demented sufferers. And that would explain the fact that they'd never taken the obvious step of burning his house. They simply could not think that logically. Neville sat looking at the half-finished drink, a thin smile fastened to his lips. So, he thought, slowly, surely we find out about them. Find out that they are no invincible race, far from it. They are a highly perishable race, requiring the strictest of physical conditions for the furtherance of their God-forsaken existence. He put the drink down on the table. I don't need it, he thought. My emotions don't need feeding any more. I don't need liquor for forgetting or for escaping. I don't have to escape from anything. Not now. For the first time since the dog had died, he smiled and felt within himself a quiet, well-modulated satisfaction. There were still many things to learn, but not so many as before. Strangely, life was becoming almost bearable. I don the robe of a hermit without a cry, he thought. On the phonograph music played, quiet and unhurried. Outside, the vampires waited. He was out hunting for Cortman. It had become a relaxing hobby, one of the few diversions left to him. On those days when he didn't care to leave the neighborhood, and there was no demanding work to be done on the house, he would search. Under cars, behind bushes, under houses, up fireplaces, in closets, under beds, in refrigerators, any place into which a moderately corpulent male body could conceivably be squeezed. Ben Cortman could be in any one of those places at one time or another. He changed his hiding place constantly. Neville felt certain that Cortman knew he was singled out for capture. He felt further that Cortman relished the peril of it. If the phrase were not such an obvious anachronism, Neville would have said that Ben Cortman had a zest for life. Sometimes he thought that Cortman was happier now than he had ever been before. Neville ambled slowly up Compton Boulevard towards the next house he meant to search. 
An uneventful morning had passed. Cortman was not found, even though Neville knew he was somewhere in the neighborhood. He had to be, because he was always the first one at the house at night. The other ones were almost always strangers. Their turnover was great because they invariably stayed in the neighborhood, and Neville found them and destroyed them. Not Cortman. As he strolled, Neville wondered again what he'd do if he found Cortman. True, his plan had always been the same, immediate disposal. But that was on the surface. He knew it wouldn't be that easy. Oh, it wasn't that he felt anything towards Cortman. It wasn't even that Cortman represented a part of the past. The past was dead, and he knew it and accepted it. No, it wasn't either of those things. What it probably was, Neville decided, was that he didn't want to cut off a recreational activity. The rest were such dull, robot-like creatures. Ben, at least, had some imagination. For some reason, his brain hadn't weakened like the others. It could be, Neville often theorized, that Ben Cortman was born to be dead. Uh, undead, that is, he thought, a wry smile playing on his lips. It no longer occurred to him that Cortman was out to kill him. That was a negligible menace. Neville sank back down on the next porch with a slow groan. Then, reaching lethargically into his pocket, he took out his pipe. With an idle thumb, he tamped rough tobacco shreds down into the pipe bowl. In a few moments, smoke swirls were floating lazily about his head in the warm, still air. It was a bigger, more relaxed Neville that gazed out across the wide field on the other side of the boulevard. An evenly paced hermit life had increased his weight to 230 pounds. His face was full, his body broad and muscular. He had long before given up shaving. Only rarely did he crop his thick beard so that it remained two or three inches from his skin. His hair was thinning and was long and straggly. Set in the deep tan of his face, his blue eyes were calm and unexcitable. He leaned back against the brick step, puffing out slow clouds of smoke. Far out across that field, he knew there was still a depression in the ground where he had buried Virginia, where she had unburied herself. But knowing it brought no glimmer of reflective sorrow to his eyes. Rather than go on suffering, he had learned to stultify himself to introspection. Time had lost its multidimensional scope. There was only the present for Robert Neville, a present based on day-to-day -day survival, marked by neither heights of joy nor depths of despair. I am predominantly vegetable, he often thought to himself. That was the way he wanted it. Robert Neville sat gazing at the white spot out in the field for several minutes before he realized that it was moving. His eyes blinked once, and the skin tightened over his face. He made a slight sound in his throat, a sound of doubting question. Then, standing up, he raised his left hand to shade the sunlight from his eyes. His teeth bit convulsively into the pipe stem. A woman. He didn't even try to catch the pipe when it fell from his mouth as his jaw went slack. For a long, breathless moment he stood there on the porch step, staring. She didn't see him. 
Her head was down as she walked across the long field. He could see her reddish hair blowing in the breeze, her arms swinging loosely at her sides. It was such an incredible sight after three years that his mind could not assimilate it. He kept blinking and staring as he stood motionless in the shade of the house. A woman, alive, in the daylight. He stood, mouth partly open, gaping at the woman. She was young, he could see now, as she came closer, probably in her twenties. She wore a wrinkled and dirty white dress. She was very tan. Her hair was red. In the dead silence of the afternoon, Neville thought he heard the crunch of her shoes in the long grass. I've gone mad. The words presented themselves abruptly. He felt less shock at the possibility than he did at the notion that she was real. He had, in fact, been vaguely preparing himself for just such a delusion. It seemed feasible. The man who died of thirst saw mirages of lakes. Why shouldn't a man who thirsted for companionship see a woman walking in the sun? He started suddenly. No, it wasn't that. For unless his delusion had sound as well as sight, he now heard her walking through the grass. He knew it was real, the movement of her hair, of her arms. She still looked at the ground. Who was she? Where was she going? Where had she been? He didn't know what welled up in him. It was too quick to analyze, an instinct that broke through every barrier of time-erected reserve. His left arm went up. "'Hi!' he cried. He jumped down to the sidewalk. "'Hi there!' A moment of sudden, complete silence. Her head jerked up, and they looked at each other. "'Alive,' he thought. "'Alive!' With a sudden twisting motion, the young woman turned and began running wildly across the field. For a moment, Neville stood there, twitching, uncertain of what to do. Then his heart seemed to burst, and he lunged across the sidewalk. His boots jolted down into the street and thudded across. Wait! he heard himself cry. The woman did not wait. He saw her bronze legs pumping as she fled across the field, and suddenly he realized words would not stop her. He thought of how shocked he had been at seeing her, how much more shocked she must have felt hearing a sudden shout end long silence and seeing a great bearded man waving at her. His legs drove him up over the other curb and into the field. His heart was pounding heavily now. She's alive. He couldn't stop thinking that. Alive. A woman alive. She couldn't run as fast as he could. Almost immediately, Neville began catching up with her. She glanced back over her shoulder with terrified eyes. I won't hurt you, he cried. But she kept running. Suddenly she tripped and went crashing down on one knee. Her face turned again, and he saw the twisted fright on it. With a desperate lunge, she regained her footing and ran on. No sound now but the sound of her shoes and his boots thrashing through the heavy grass. He began jumping over the grass to avoid its impending height, and gained more ground. The skirt of her dress whipped against the grass, holding her back. "'Stop!' he cried again, but more from instinct than with any hope that she wouldn't stop." She ran still faster, and gritting his teeth, Neville put another burst of speed into his pursuit. He followed in a straight line as the girl weaved across the field, her light reddish hair billowing behind her. 
Now he was so close he could hear her tortured breathing. He didn't like to frighten her, but he couldn't stop now. Everything else in the world seemed to have fallen from view but her. He had to catch her. Another stretch of field. The two of them ran, panting. She glanced back at him again to see how close he was. He didn't realize how frightening he looked. Six foot three in his boots, a gigantic bearded man with an intent look. Now his hand lurched out and he caught her by the right shoulder. With a gasping scream, the young woman twisted away and stumbled to the side. Losing balance, she fell on one hip on the rocky ground. Neville jumped forward to help her up. She scuttled back over the ground and tried to get up, but she slipped and fell again, this time on her back. Her skirt jerked up over her knees. She shoved herself up with a breathless whimper, her dark eyes terrified. "'Here!' he gasped, reaching out his hand. She slapped it aside with a slight cry and struggled to her feet. He caught her by the arm and her free hand lashed out, raking jagged nails across his forehead and right temple. With a grunt he jerked back his arm and she whirled and began running again. Neville jumped forward and caught her by the shoulders. "'What are you afraid?' He couldn't finish. Her hand drove stingingly across his mouth. Then there was only the sound of gasping and struggling, of their feet scrabbling and slipping on the earth, crackling down the thick grass. "'Will you stop?' he cried, but she kept battling. She jerked back, and his taut fingers ripped away part of her dress. He let go, and the material fluttered down to her waist. He saw her tanned shoulder and the white brassiere cup of her left breast. She clawed out at him, and he caught her wrists in an iron grip. Her right foot drove a bone-numbing kick to his shin. Damn it! With a snarl of rage, he drove his right palm across her face. She staggered back, then looked at him dizzily. Abruptly, she started crying, helplessly. She sank to her knees before him, holding her arms over her head as if to ward off any further blows. Neville stood there gasping, looking down at her. He blinked, then took a deep breath. Get up, he said. I'm not going to hurt you. She didn't raise her head. He looked down confusedly at her. He didn't know what to say. I said, I'm not going to hurt you, he told her again. She looked up, but his face seemed to frighten her again, for she shrank back. She crouched there, looking up at him fearfully. What are you afraid of? he asked. He didn't realize that his voice was devoid of warmth, that it was the harsh, sterile voice of a man who had lost all touch with humanity. He took a step toward her, and she drew back again with a frightened gasp. He extended his hand. Here, he said, stand up. She got up slowly, but without his help. Noticing suddenly her exposed breasts, she reached down and held up the torn material of her dress. They stood there, breathing harshly and looking at each other. And now that the first shock had passed, Neville didn't know what to say. He'd been dreaming of this moment for years. His dreams had never been like this. What... "'What's your name?' he asked. She didn't answer. Her eyes stayed on his face. Her lips kept trembling. "'Well?' he asked loudly, and she flinched. 
Ruth, her voice faltered. A shudder ran through Robert Neville's body. The sound of her voice seemed to loosen everything in him. Questions disappeared. He felt his heart beating heavily. He almost felt as if he were going to cry. His hand moved out almost unconsciously. Her shoulder trembled under his palm. Ruth, he said in a flat, lifeless voice. His throat moved as he stared at her. Ruth, he said again. The two of them, the man and the woman, stood facing each other in the great, hot field. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.